So today's class is about God in Halakha. As Jess already said, it's a very big topic, and I hope that we can do some justice to it. I have to admit that I'm very nervous about this class in a way that I haven't been nervous about uh, the rest of the classes in this, uh, in, this, in this session, in this time slot. Um, I'm nervous partially because I don't really feel that I have mastery over the subject myself. Um, theology is not something that I've been good at in general. Um, it's been much more easy for me to talk about halakha. In fact, halakha is what I'm doing my dissertation on, or half of what my dissertation is, so that's kind of like my field, so to speak. Halakha is not. Um, theology is. Sorry, theology is not. Um, so I don't feel mastery of it, over it. Um, and as a result, this is kind of a first stab at something. And I'm hoping that you know, by hearing your responses, I can get a sense of what works, what doesn't work. But I do hope it, it's meaningful for you. Um, this is this is very much kind of, in some ways, this is a kind of internal discussion that I'm trying to, to open up. Um, so that's by way of introduction. I also want to say a few things about what this class is not. Um, this is not systematic theology. We're not going to go and try to prove God's existence. Um, I'm, try, I'm, not, I'm not actually trying to give you any kind of systematic representation of what God is in Judaism. Um, the point of this class, rather, is to present you with an image, um, or perhaps a series of images um, about God that I hope are compelling and meaningful um, and are uh, consistent with the rest of your life as Jews and as, um, and as observant individuals. Um, I should also say that it's a creative class. Um, some of what we're going to look at is in the sources, but not all of it is. Uh, a good amount of it is um, an attempt to formulate some new image. Um, and I should also say this is not a vision which is going to work for everyone. I'm actually quite sure right now this is not an image that's going to be helpful for everyone. Um, I do think it is helpful for people who either have fallen out of faith, um, who have lost their faith in some capacity, or have never had faith but want it or feel like there's something missing um, in their own understanding um, of Judaism uh, because there's a kind of God-sized hole in it. Um, that's the, that's the purpose of this class. Okay, introduction over. We've spent a lot of time in this class talking about um, a model of halakha that pays attention to forms, norms, and values. We're sitting here in the University of Pennsylvania um, as we live lives which are both Jewish but also secular. We interact with non-Jews on a daily basis. We are free to basically talk about whatever topic we want. We're, we're um, quite liberated individuals. And I want to talk about what is a little bit obvious, but how those things can have a detrimental effect on our relationship with God. Um, I think these, these may be things that you've been told at some point in your life as well, that there's a danger um, in living a certain kind of life, but I just want to spell it out for you. Um, part of it is that the kind of halakha we've been looking at um, is not really compatible with the notion that God is king of the universe. It is, or if it, perhaps it is compatible with that, but it certainly is not an easy, um, is not an easy connection. Um, we have spent very little time talking about God. We've also spent a good amount of time um, manipulating sources in ways which um, Orthodox Jews would not be comfortable manipulating those sources. Um, We've opened up God as well to secular metrics. God is not an entity which exists unto himself or herself, but rather we say that we can critique God or critique God's law um, by looking at ethics. Um, that makes it difficult to serve God totally and absolutely. 
Um, worship itself, as a result, is no longer blind. Worship always has, there's, there's something behind it. Um, and because we've spent so much time digging through the sources, there's also a, a transparency we have. Um, we can't simply see God as kind of this black box or white box or whatever um, out there somewhere, but we, we've spent a lot of time trying to investigate um, his presence, at least his presence in law. Um, and because we've treated all questions as fair game, um, there's really not so much space to find mystery. Um, and the last, well, maybe two more things. One is that we recognize our own roles in the law. We recognize that we are making decisions. Like if you think back to the second class we had on halakhic activism, that we make our own decisions about what we choose to do um, in a halakhic context. Um, it's not simply some, you know, obeying passively, but rather there are always conscious choices. And to expand on that, the choice to be Jewish as well, the choice to live a halakhic lifestyle as well, is one that we make much more consciously than we have in previous, um, than in previous uh, decades and in previous centuries. Um, the sociologist Peter Berger talks about this as being a age, an age of heresy. Heresy from the Greek word heresis, which is to choose. That is, this is an age when people choose their own faiths. You don't just come into your faith and live in it. You're always making a choice. Uh, and it's supported by the fact that you are constantly interacting with people who have made different choices from you. So everyone is a heretic in some way. Um, and as a result, we kind of are, are much more conscious of the fact that we have put ourselves in, 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 um, in the kinds of lives that we, that we currently live um, and the beliefs that we currently hold. Um, so these are the problems of so the problem of power, problem of our own activity, problem of transparency, problem of heresis of heresy, and one of an ethical metric. These are all things which make it difficult to think about God as simply a God who is omnipotent, omnibenevolent, gave Torah from Sinai, um, and it's the Torah that we follow. Um, that image is pretty radically shattered by all of the things that I mentioned above, and perhaps some other things as well. By the way, interrupt me. Like, I'm, I'm just going to talk, but like, if you have a question, then interrupt me, or, or something you want to correct me on, or add. Okay. Now, why, I'm going to ask a question in a strange way. Why is it that we find um, our image of God to be shattered by this kind of lifestyle that I've described above? Um, the truth of the matter is that the way that um, Jews are normally taught theology is incredibly primitive in, to, in relation to the way that they're taught almost anything else. Um, most people get taught about God when they're in grade school, when they're in like grades two, three, four, five, um, in a pretty standard, pretty flat, um, simple language, and then it never gets talked again in any sophisticated way. Um, if it is talked about again, it's not necessarily talked about in sophisticated uh, or, or helpful ways. Um, there's certainly an educational component in this. Um, there are a lot of teachers who are just not good at talking about God. But I think beyond that, um, we end up getting left with a vision of God that is, you know, back in second grade or third grade when we've moved on beyond that. And so we end up thinking is, well, how come I can't think about God the way I did when I was in grade two? How come it was, it was so much easier back then? Um, which you know, there certainly is something nice and idyllic about the image of God that you can have when you're a, a kid, um, but I don't know that that necessarily works when you're older in life and you think more complexly, and it ends up being a kind of fantasy that is going to will always be unfulfilled. Just like you can never go back to your grade two version of anything, um, so God should be no different as a result of that. Um, 
the image of God that you were presented with early on in life is one that um, demands respect and demands obedience. And the authority looks not so different from the authority that you give to your parents. Um, your parents are bigger than you, they're stronger than you, they take care of you, hopefully, and God does those things, but, you know, a hundred thousandfold. Um, that is Which the, might be developmentally appropriate for second grade theology. For sure. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not attacking that. I'm saying I actually think that that's a perfectly appropriate way to teach kids when they're at, the age, at that age level. Um, I don't know that's the only way to think about authority. Um, certainly, as you get older, there are other things that demand your attention and demand your, that, that call out um, authoritatively in your life that are not your parents. Um, and so it seems strange to me that the way we think about God stays in that kind of quasi-parental format um, of this bigger, better, stronger being uh, who demands your respect and authority because he or she knows better than you. Um, it's also difficult because, you know, we see an imperfect world, we have questions about Torah, um, and as we become more powerful especially, the idea that, you know, however powerful we are, God is more powerful than that, um, begins to wear thin, um, especially when we have no other analogs to that in our life. Um, you know, when you're a kid, there's lots of people who are bigger than you, but when you grow older, there's lots of areas in your life where you feel empowered, and just to keep on thinking, like, whatever you are, like, you know, you get cut down to size by the fact that God is bigger than that, um, seems like it's not a winning vision of God, um, because it, at a certain point it becomes very difficult to imagine that kind of great exalted power. Um, it goes against much of the way that people think about themselves as being empowered individuals. Um, I should also add a couple things. In our childhood, when we do talk about God, if we talk about God at all, um, we don't talk about private conversations with God as being part of that picture, meaning that people, you know, I know I talked to God when I was, when I was a kid. Uh, no one really told me how to do that or talked about that as being part of a theology. Um, the theology was very, was very much one of rote, was uh, one of, you know, this is the reason to do meets vote. And so any kind of other personal relationship with God is not dictated as, like, as being valuable ultimately as part of a, a relationship. Um, and lastly, because the relationship with God is primarily one through halakha, because halakha is emphasized more than Torah, more than, you know, certainly more than meditation or mysticism, um, the image we have of God is one that's primarily about like God is here telling you to do stuff. Um, and so that's overwhelmingly um, what gets shattered. Um, and that, I think, that vision of God is pretty easily shattered uh, as we grow up in America, um, living secular lives, yeah. I mean, even God through halakha is a two-way street, right? Like, on the one hand, there's all this stuff that we're doing because God said to do. But on the other hand, there's tefillah, which is us, you know, making requests of God in some cases. Right. Which is also not um, removed from the, of the, from the parent model of God, that God is somebody you ask, you ask things of. And again, that's another element which... Um, when you are younger, is easier to do than when you're older. I think when you're older, the idea that you know you ask and God simply gives uh, gives back is more difficult to maintain. Um, there's a level of faith, and I, I think many many of us have a level of skepticism that makes that a difficult task to say. Like I'm just going to ask, and I think God's going to give it to me. Okay. So these are the problems. So what? So what do you do? Like what do you do with this? Um, with this primitive theology, 
uh, and it being shattered so radically by the lives we live. Well, one thing you can do is kind of shove God to the side and say, you know, it's not, it's not so important. I don't really need to worry about God because there's enough in Judaism besides God, and that will, you know, that will suffice. So I want to look at a couple of sources of you here. One is source 2A. Yeah. Can I complicate the question further? Please. Which is um, beyond what happens when that image of God is shattered, but what do you do if there was no image of God or relationship God to begin with to be shattered Great. that you want to try and capture, not recapture? Great. So there I would say for people in that situation, the image of God in popular culture is still the one that looks more like the elementary school God. Um, and so f for those individuals as well, there's the same problem, except it's even exacerbated because it's like, well, at least they had that experience. At least they had a rosy childhood where they had that image of God. I didn't even have anything. Um, so either way, I think we need to, to work on creating better images. Um, but first, some problems, some problematic responses. One is in 2A, uh, this is a short Gemara. You may have heard it before. Rechia bar Ami said in the name of Ula, from the day that the temple was destroyed, God has nothing in his world but the four cubits of Ha'alacha alone. Now, this could have been a nice way to start off this entire, this entire class. Right? <laughs> this is like the core thing. This is where God resides. Um, but the image of God here is, is one that's restricted. Um, God has kind of taken Halacha as a haven because the rest of reality is not safe. Um, so where is it safe to, like, to think about Judaism? Where is it safe to like, express our feelings? In Halacha. Elsewhere, don't want to go there. And you really see this in the, the lesson that Abaya takes out of the rule in 2b. Rabbiah said, I used to study at home and pray in the sanctuary. Since I heard the statement of Rav Barami in the name of Ula, I only pray in the place where I study. So he studies at home, and he prays at home. What does it mean that God is restricted to the four amot of halacha? It means that Abaya has removed himself from the, public, from the, from the public, from the marketplace. Um, so there is a way of reading this as being entirely anti-community. Of course, this is not the only way to read this. This is the the, the statement appears twice. Abaya takes it this way, but you don't have to take it this way. Um, I think a more radical way, which is uh, which again you may have seen before, appears in this short. Um, I don't even know what to call it. Um, it's it's a fictional um, it's a fictional letter called Yosel Iraq over talks to God, written by a guy named Svikolitz. When it was found, um, people thought it was a real letter written by a person in the Warsaw ghetto. Um, during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And it's a letter by this name, this guy, Yasla Rakover, who's talking to God, writes a letter to God, expressing deep anger with God and what God has done um, and the course of the war and the suffering that it has caused. And he ha has this statement in the letter where he says, I believe in the God of Israel, even when he has done everything to make me cease to believe in him. I believe in his laws, even when I cannot justify his deeds. My relationship to him is no longer that of a servant to his master, but of a student to his rabbi. I bow my head before his greatness, but I will not kiss the rod with which he chastises me. But I love his Torah more. Even if I were disappointed in him, I would still cherish his Torah. God commands religion, but his Torah commands a way of life. And the more we die for the way of life, the more immortal it is. And then the next passage, God of Israel, he said, I have fled to this place so that I may serve you in peace to follow your commandments and glorify your name. You, however, I do everything to make me cease believing, do everything to make me cease believing in you. But if you think that you will succeed with these trials in deflecting me from the true path, 
Then I cry to you, my God and the God of my parents, that none of it will help you. You may insult me, you may chastise me, you may take me from the dearest and the best that I have in the world, you may torture me to death, I will always believe in you. I will love you always and forever, even despite you. Um, it's very powerful, uh, the language he writes. Um, and there is something compelling about it. It says, like, halakha is a savior from God. Um, Torah is a savior from God. We don't need God anymore because Torah is just so wonderful that it's not necessary anymore. Um, and, and there are certainly people for whom this, is, this works. There are people for whom halakha works um, irrespective of God, irrespective of God, or even despite God. I'm not sure, though, that it works um, on a community level or on a pedagogical level. Um, this is a personal decision that, person, that someone can come to, but if we are looking to raise uh, communities or have future generations of Jews, then you know, teaching kids like, you know, we love Torah, but like, ah, forget about God, like, he's just getting in the way. We'll, we'll love him, but like, just to show him, just to show him something is not really a winning model. It's very angry, for the first, first of all. And also, it basically has not shifted that image of God as parent. It says, you know, God's a parent who's done a bad job, but it's still the same ultimate image. Um, and so this, I think, is not sufficient. We need something else. Um, there is another model that we have, and the story you may have heard of, of Tanur Shalachnai, Loba Shemayim. I haven't given you the whole story here. But the basic idea is that um, there is a contest between one rabbi and the rest of the rabbis. The rest, the rest of the rabbis say to the one rabbi, like, we want to do things our way. The one rabbi says, no, but God wants it my way. And the rest of the rabbis say, it doesn't matter. Loba Shemayim, he, it's not in heaven, and they get their way. And there's an appendix to this story, which is on source number five on page three, where it says, so what does God think of all this? The fact that people are kind of um, overturning God's own decisions, his own rulings. Uh, Rabbi Natan met Elijah, Elijah the prophet, and asked him, what did the Holy One blessed be he do in that hour when we were all talking about this stuff? He, Elijah, laughed with joy and replied, saying, my sons have defeated me, my sons have defeated me. God is happy that the people have kind of uh, done better, have, have um, grown up, so to speak. So this is an image of God that says, like, people are supposed to take charge. Um, you know, yes, we have more of a hand in halakha than we have had in previous times, but that's fine. Like, that's, that's part of our job. Um, and that simply re represents a more mature relationship that we have with God. So this is certainly powerful, and you've probably, I mean, this is one of the most famous agadahs in the Gemara that's, that's taught. Um, it's taught every school, everywhere. Um, but there's some problems with it. One is that you kind of leave God as an empty nester here. Uh, yes, God is happy with you, but then the relationship is kind of over. Um, God's happy to see his children, you know, let them go, let them do what they want, you know, go off to college, go off, make their own decisions. But then, you know, it doesn't specify what the relationship is supposed to look like after that. It kind of leaves you open. And furthermore, the story itself relies on a very, very strong rabbinic authority. Right? The story is about a council of rabbis overturning democratically a single rabbi, which I think for us in a, in a society where rabbinic authority is incredibly fragmented, the moral of that story is difficult to, to, to grasp because um, it's unclear where uh, human authority lies in the first place. Um, moreover, even in the story itself, it's not entirely happy that this is happening, that, like, that, that the people are overwhelming God, 
the rest of the story goes on to say that like the person who was overruled was actually incredibly hurt by this and um, it ultimately led to um, the death of one of the rabbis. Um, so this is not a rosy picture by any means. You had a question before. Um, I just wanted to point out that this passage emphasizes that there really is no direct relationship with God anymore when you have like you started talking about like how the relationship deteriorates or you don't um, you don't really know what happens to it, but they have to ask Eliyahu in order to find out what God's reaction is. And that indicates that maybe when um, when people are so empowered to make their own decisions about um, how to how to observe halakha, it ends up severing the relationship entirely such that there's no communication whatsoever. Right. And only through intermediaries. Right. Right, the story is kind of the end of God. Um, I agree with you, and I agree that it's it's very disturbing, and it also kind of leaves you thinking, like, so what does tefillah mean? What, what does it mean to pray after this? Uh, after God said, you know, good job, but I'm going to send my messenger to, to tell you that. Um, okay, so these two solutions don't work. So what are we looking for then? Um, here are some, here's my list of requirements. I would like us to find a relationship with God that involves communication, for the first thing. I also want it to be a relationship that is vivid, um, a relationship that has mental images, not actual images, because that's not how we do things, um, but is something that we can, we can think about um, and is, is powerful enough to actually use in prayer or in, in the context of studying Jewish texts in our lives. I want a relationship that is sourced in texts, and I want a relationship that obligates, not just a relationship that looks good on paper, um, but one that actually requires us to act in some ways, that supports a lechic system which has some teeth in it. Um, I want a relationship that accepts us, even if it does not always accept all of our activities. Um, and a relationship that is not damaged by the very ways in which we as moderns think, which seems to be often um, the, the images of God that I, are presented in elementary school are just damaged by, the, by thinking the way we are, and often the only way to to go back to those images is basically to become a different person. But if you become a different person, then it's not really a relationship with you anymore, is it? It's a relationship with the person you've become so that you can interact with the God you had when you were in grade two. Um, so you want a real kind of communication. And I also want a relationship that works both individually and community, and communally. So that's my list of demands. Um, how, do we, how do we do this? Um, the model I want to pick for this class is to talk about obligation. Um, this is often all, just also like honestly, one of the critiques that um, is often leveled at the kind of Judaism that we've been talking about in this class is like, this is all very nice, but where's mitzvah? Where's like the notion that you were commanded to do stuff? You're fiddling with all the rules, like, but you're not, you're not actually serious about doing it. And to be fair, because the version of Judaism we're looking at is not so dissimilar from conservative Judaism, which does not have a perfect track record of observance, um, it's, you know, it's pretty fair. Um, it's a serious critique, and it's a critique that we need to take seriously. So how do we think about obligation? Well, um, there are many things that obligate us in our lives. As I said before, when we're kids, our parents are primarily the, th the people who obligate us. Um, we can be obligated by threats. Uh, we can be obligated by our fears, by our desires for things. Those, are all, those all create obligation. Um, when we get older, we are, can be obligated by a, sense, by a sense of duty or a sense of right and wrong, a kind of internal um, morality that we pick up along the way. Um, 
and we can also be obligated by social relationships. But I think um, where we feel the most obligated um, is in relationships with particular other individuals. Um, we feel an obligation that comes out of a sense of relationship, the fact that I have a bond with a certain person, and because I have a bond with a certain person, um, I am committed to, to doing certain things or acting in a certain way. And that's certainly the parent relationship. That's what it means to be obligated because of your parents. Did you have a question? Oh. Um, it also is what it means to be obligated to one's spouse. Um, and you have images in the Torah, in Shirashirim, for example, of God and Israel um, having a spousal relationship. Um, that one is that there is a, a kind of obligation that is generated by um, that relationship, um, and lastly, there is a relationship to children. There's an obligation that comes out of, out of children. Um, the fact of having children, the fact of bringing children into the world, is one that generates a set of obligations towards um, maintaining and helping those children thrive um, and become ethical beings in their own right. Um, and so those kind of family relationships, I think, are the most powerful um, obligators in the world. Um, and what I want to do is try to think about uh, a relationship with God in terms of those family relationships, um, but move away from the parent model. Um, and to do that, I want to present you with two ideas, um, which I think are interconnected. The first I'm going to call um, a notion of divine vulnerability. That is, that God is a being who is infinitely vulnerable, um, ultimately vulnerable. Often the way we think about God um, is a God which is infinitely, infinitely, infinitely powerful. Um, God can do anything, can be anywhere, knows everything. That is the image of God we have, which, as I've said before, is an image of God that doesn't always sit with us well. But there is another trend in uh, in Jewish texts which suggests that God has a different kind of relationship, um, and it's a relationship of of understanding that there is weakness in the world, being interested in weakness in the world. Um, and even that, um, suffering when human beings suffer. Um, I know the last one is something which is no, we normally associate with Christianity, that God suffers. But you do have the notion in, in the Torah in, as well, in Midrash, for example, in, in uh, number six, on the sheet, Midrash to Helim. This is a story about um, at, after the uh, exile of the Jews under the Babylonians, um, there's something, you know, something horribly um, shameful happens to the Jews. And Rav Achabar Abba says, at that moment, God wished to return the entire world to null and void, which is too much to see as people suffering like this. God said, everything that I have created was only ever for these Israelites. I shall destroy it. Rabbi Alpha Bar Kuria said, at that moment, all the ministering angels came before God and said, Master of the universe, the whole world and everything within it is yours. Are you not satisfied with destroying your lower house? That you would destroy your upper house, meaning the heavens? He said to them, do I need consolation? I know the beginning and the end, as it says, even to old age, I am the same. Therefore, I said, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. This is God talking, saying, I will weep bitterly. He said to them, this consolation with which you attempt to console me are, rev are revolting to me. Leave me and lift the burden from upon them. Immediately the ministering angels descended and took the burden from upon them, and not just ministering angels, but God himself traveled as well. God travels with the Jewish people. Why did it say, we also wept? This is in, um, in Al-Naharad Bavel, Gam Bachinu. We also wept, who's the Gam there? because they cried and God cried with them. So the suffering of the Jewish people corresponds to um, God's suffering as well, which is to say that, um, that God is vulnerable to the activities of the world. And it says something else, that um, 
there's a notion that the suffering that exists in the world today, Jewish suffering, other suffering, is suffering which affects God. Um, that, and that there is something sacred about um, adjusting that suffering, about fixing that suffering. That that is a part of a relationship with God as well. Because God is attuned to suffering and because God is interested um, in healing. Um, this is something you have in the next passage as well, where you see even more explicitly, like, what does it mean to know God? It means to be sensitive to vulnerability and to fix vulnerability. Rabbi Hamabar, son of Hanina, further said, what means the text, you shall walk after the Lord your God? Is it then possible for a human being to walk after the Shekhinah? For has it not been said, for the Lord thy God is a devouring fire? But the meaning is to walk after the attributes of the Holy One, blessed be he. As he clothes the naked, for it is written, and the Lord made sorry, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife coats of skin and clothed them, so do you also clothe the naked. The Holy One, blessed be he, visited the sick, for it is written, and the Lord appeared unto him by the oaks of Mamre, so do you also visit the sick. The Holy One, blessed be he, comforted mourners, for it is said, for it is written, and it, will, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed Isaac his son, so do you, so do thou, also comfort mourners. The Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead, for it is written, and he buried him in the valley, this is Moshe, so do thou also bury the dead. So human beings respond to the way in, in the ways that God responds, and human beings are responsible for acting um, in the world in the ways in ways that are similar to the way uh, to the ways that that God acts in the world. Um, now, I recognize that these images themselves don't represent God as as being weak. Um, these are these are God responding to weakness, but God Himself is not weak. But I kind of want to go back to the source we looked at on the first page, source two a. From the day that the temple was destroyed, God has nothing in the world but the four cubits of halacha alone. Now. There's a way of looking at that which suggests you should just seclude yourself from the world, but there's another way of imagining that, which is to say, what is halakha? Halakha is a refuge. And the way we um, relate to God through halakha is a relationship where God has restricted himself because there is a tragedy, there has been some kind of tragedy. And so there is something kind of tragic about the way we relate to God um, through the medium of halakha, because that is not the ideal situation. Ideally, you relate to God in all aspects of your life. Ideally, you don't need a kind of halakha um, to allow you to communicate with God. And ideally, God wouldn't need to restrict himself as well. And I think what that suggests is um, that there is this element of what it means to, to be connected to God um, through halakha, which suggests this is, this is not ideal. This is, um, this is a situation which um, which involves some kind of tragedy or loss or sadness um, and has to be rectified. And so we relate to God, understanding that God, trapped in these four emotive halakha, is not in the place that God wants to be um, and, that there, and that there's some kind of vulnerability there as a result. You have this as well, and I haven't given you a source because I couldn't track one down in time. Um, this is a very strong idea in Luriana Kabbalah. Um, Luriana Kabbalah, to give you the short version, um, understands God as being, um, as having to basically confine himself for the purpose of creating the world. Um, that the creation of the world itself um, caused chaos, caused destruction in what was otherwise a perfect God. Um, this is the notion of tzimtzum, of kind of um, self-contraction, um, or of shvirat ha'kelim, of the breaking of the vessels, that God's, God's um, essence could not be contained in the world itself. And so regardless of what you think that, that means, and it can mean a lot of different things, one thing it can mean is that um, 
that there is something arbitrary about the world, the materiality of the world, means that whenever you encounter God in the world, you're encountering a God that is diminished in some way, a God that is not complete, a God that is, um, that requires completing. And so that kind of relationship, I think, this notion of that God is vulnerable as a result of being in the world, as a result of the world's realities, um, suggests that in our relationship with, with God, we can actually be powerful. Um, whereas the second greatest relationship with God is one where I am weak and God is strong. This actually says the very fact of God's vulnerability demands that I be strong. It demands that I take control, that I, that I use my power, but also use it carefully because it's a relationship in which God is vulnerable. Yeah? This whole idea of... I'll try not to harp on this too much, but this whole idea of God being vulnerable and God, you know, sort of like God crying along with the Israelites, this is an idea that I heard a lot when I was learning about theology from my teacher, Rav Shai Held, who was also your teacher. And it just seems so full of hubris to me. The idea that, like, God, who created the world, who, you know, you know, on one level, you can't conceive of God as anything but all-powerful, to say, well, that doesn't work for us. So instead, I'll conceive of a God that, you know, is weak and cares about me and needs me and, you know, is incomplete and imperfect because it makes me feel better. It's like, this just doesn't resonate with me at all. And you, yeah. you might not have an answer for that, which is why it's just how I feel about this kind of approach to theology. So one thing I would say, and I this might also, also not be helpful to you, is that that God's vulnerability is actually um, a function of the fact that God is all-powerful. Meaning, like, it would not be as tragic or would not be as complete of a, of a weakness if God was, you know, started out as not as already being incomplete or as being individual or as being less than um, omnipotent. Um, but there's something particularly tragic about uh, the fact that we're talking about an all-powerful being who, because of um, the existence of the world and the arbitrariness of the world, um, is weakened as a result of that, or is vulnerable as a result of that. Um, but the other part of this is to say, like I said at the beginning, I'm not trying to present you with a systematic theology. What I'm trying to present is, is images that I think are helpful when we understand ourselves as being strong and understand ourselves as be having um, a rather large role in relation to um, halacha and as, as having influence on it. Um, so when we are strong, I think, it doesn't hurt to think about God as being vulnerable uh, and to think about ourselves as having a duty um, in the world as a result of that vulnerability, our duty stemming out of that. Um, but it's certainly not to say, and therefore you, you, know, you don't think about God as being the creator of the world, you don't think about God as, like, as giving Torah. Um, it's rather, um, I think these things do work together, they can work together. Um, other questions? Okay. Um, the other thing, which I think is started to say already, is that uh, vulnerability demands or demands action, demands response, um, and it demands a relationship to God and a relationship to the world as well, uh, God's creation, as as one of ethics, um, and that we have responsibility to the world um, to do to do good in the world, to do right in the world. This is something we saw last time when we were talking about social justice halacha in the source on the Tomer Dvara, um, that what does it mean to be like God? To be like God means to, um, to be good to other people, to be slow to anger, just, because, just like God is slow to anger. 
Um, and so there's this kind of, uh, there's this way in which there's something divine about, about being good, about goodness. Um, and that is a way which does not require us to kind of shrink back from our own power um, and our own ability to, to grapple with halakhic sources. If you want. Um, now, thinking about God as being vulnerable is um, difficult to visualize. Um, it's certainly difficult to visualize in Judaism. I think it's easier to, to visualize in uh, Christianity. Um, I think there is a way to do it, and this is perhaps more speculative than even what I just said. Um, and that is to think about God by putting ourselves in his shoes, so to speak. Um, and in this, I want to talk particularly about um, the parent-child relationship that I talked about before. So uh, families obligate, uh, family relations obligate. Um, but there is a difference between the kind of obligation between a parent and a child and between a child and a parent. A child's obligation to a parent results out of the fact that the parent is clothing the child, is feeding the child, is providing the child with shelter. Um, and what the obligation consists of is basically following what the parent says, um, more or less to the letter. A parent's obligation to a child is somewhat larger and more amorphous. Uh, the, the obligation stems out of the fact that it is, it is your child, it is your obligation as a result of that. Um, but what that obligation consists of, no one tells you. Um, it's wide-ranging, it's basically whatever it takes, whatever it takes um, for this child, um, which is helpless, which is vulnerable, um, to grow up, to gain ethics. Um, and so the obligation does not have formal boundaries. Um, but what bounds it, in a sense, is the parent's own understanding of this is what I need to do for this child, um, because this is what this child requires. Um, and so it, re it requires um, being kind of on top of oneself to know, like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? Um, the obligation is generated by the child, but at the same time, the child is not the one who is telling you what to do. Um, the child is simply generating the obligation, or rather the relationship with that child is generating the obligation. Now, this would say, this would suggest, I think, that there is something, um, there's a kind of sacred responsibility with being a parent. Um, and I want to bring a couple sources which start to talk about that, although I, I'll say in advance that I think neither source says this entirely. This is, this is an idea I'm trying to posit. Um, I don't think there's a perfect source for this out there. One is Levinas. And I am both like delighted and um, terrified to do Levinas with you because he's incredibly difficult to read, um, incredibly subtle. Um, Levinas has, an, has a notion, not to get too much into this, um, Levinas comes out of a background of existentialism. Existentialism as a school of philosophy suggests that, among other things, that there's a, there's a kind of turn inwards, that, he, that there are no universal morals, uh, that there is no universal essences whatsoever. People exist and kind of make whatever they want out of their existence. And one of the kind of the quirks out of making whatever you want out of your own existence is that there's something particularly dangerous about other people. Um, because other people can also make whatever they want out of their own existences. And I can decide whatever system of morals I want, and they can decide whatever system of morals they want. And this led Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the key existential philosophers, to say that hell is other people. Levinas takes some of these notions but kind of spins them around and says, that other person, the other, capital O as he calls it, is actually the source of ethics. 
Um, and so he talks specifically about the fact that um, what it means to look into another person's face and to look into another person's eyes is actually the beginning of ethics because in that moment there is an impulse towards violence. This is not me. This person represents an entire vision of looking at the world that is not my own and this is a threat to me and a threat to the sovereignty I have over the world as I perceive it. But in that moment as well, there is also the first mitzvah, do not kill. That you allow other people to exist as having their own perspectives on the world. And so we only see ethics in our relationships with other people. That's really where, where it's found. Um, that's the first source. That's source number 10 that I've given you. Let's read it. It's, it's the easier of the two Levinas sources that I've given you. Sorry. Levinas says, number 10, the other who can sovereignly say no to me is exposed to the point of the sword or the revolver's bullet and the whole unshakable firmness of his for itself with that intransigent no he opposes is obliterated because the sword of the bullet has touched the ventricles or oracles of his heart. In the contexture of the world, he is a quasi-nothing, but he can oppose to me a struggle, that is, opposed to the force that strikes him, not a force of resistance, but the very unforeseeableness of his reaction. This is the other thing that's, that's difficult about other people. We don't know what, what they're going to do. He thus opposes to me not a greater force, not some superlative power, but precisely the infinity of his transcendence, that he is entirely different, he is entirely separate um, outside of me. This infinity, stronger than murder, already resists us, resists us in his face, is his face, is the primordial expression in the first word, you shall not commit murder. The, infin the infinite paralyzes power by its infinite resistance to murder, which, firm and insurmountable, gleams in the face of the other, in the total nudity of his defenseless eyes, in the nudity of the absolute openness of the transcendent. There is here a relation not with a very great resistance, but with something absolutely other. The resistance of what has no resistance. The ethical resistance. If the resistance to murder were not ethical, but real, we would have a perception of it, with all that refers to the subjective in, per in perception. We would remain with the idealism of a consciousness of a struggle, and not in relationship with the other, a relationship that can turn into a struggle, but already overflows the consciousness of a struggle. The epiphany of the face is ethical. Um, I wish we had time to unpack that. Um, he's, he's a difficult writer. Um, he's a very, he's a, I think it's a, he's a very beautiful writer, and I think the beauty is important in, in trying to create these images as well. Um, but what's important here is the notion that the other um, is a source of ethics, and he expands on this idea in, a, in an appendix to the book called fecundity. Fecundity, I had to look it up, um, is productive or creative power. Here he's talking about it in terms of reproductive power, creating children. And what he suggests in talking about this is, okay, we know that other people are, are a source of ethics, but what about the other that is a child? What does it mean to have a child and have that child be, um, be an other as well? And he says, well, child's kind of weird because a child is both you and not you. It's a little bit you, but it's also kind of not you. So which one is it? In a sense, he says, um, children are a way of speaking with the future. Um, it's, a, it's a way of relating to the otherness that is the future itself, uh, which is also transcendent in the sense that it's entirely unknowable in the way that other people are unknowable. Um, but it also requires a kind of 
constant youth, a, con a kind of constant rejuvenation. Um, and importantly, it means that um, it requires a different kind of ethics. It's not just an ethics of you shall not murder, but it, it requires teaching. Um, because the obligation to the future, the obligation that is presented by the future is an obligation um, to, to present ethical teaching, to be an ethical individual. Um, so just to read a little bit of this, it's difficult and also the hour is late, um, but in the second last paragraph on the page. The relation with the child establishes a relationship with the absolute future or infinite time. In fecundity, the tedium of this repetition ceases. The I is other and young, that is the I who is the child, the, yet the ipsity, ipsity, the selfness that ascribed to its, its meaning and its orientation in being is not lost in their announcement of self. Fecundity continues history without producing old age. Infinite time does not bring an internal life to an unaging subject. It is better across the discontinuity of generations, punctuated by the inexhaustible youths of the child. Fecundity engendering fecundity accomplishes goodness. Above and beyond the sacrifice that imposes a gift, the gift of the power of giving, the conception of the child. Here the desire, which in the first page of this work we contrasted with need, the desire that is not a lack, the desire that is independence of the separated being and its transcendence is accomplished. Not in being satisfied and in thus acknowledging that it was a need, but in transcending itself, in engendering desire. Um, this notion of the child as, um, or as, as kind of the, the re as recreative potential as accomplishing goodness, I think helps us understand um, what it means to have a relationship with God from God's perspective. We often think about God as, as being a father of some kind. But as we've seen before, one of our responsibilities is to try to know God. Now, we've talked about knowing God in terms of knowing goodness. But you can also think about what it means to know God as knowing what it means to be a father. Knowing what it means to be in God's shoes and to have that relationship with the Jewish people. And I think if you see it in those terms, then to come close to what it means to be God is to come close to that sense of um, obligation to, to children. An obligation that comes out of this sense of vulnerability and weakness and also um, a responsibility to the future. Um, I think actually there's something nice about Levinas and thinking about an obligation with Jewish people because Levinas talks about children as being both yourself and not yourself. And because human beings have in themselves a spark of God, you can also think about people as being both kind of God and not God. Um, and so there is this same kind of like quasi-genetic, like partially God, partially not God relationship that exists within human beings. So what this means is that um, you can actually have a, a sense of obligation that comes from knowing a little bit the mind of God, the mind of God as a father, um, as a father who is obligated to, or a mother, um, not to pick sides, um, who is obligated to individuals. Um, so what does this mean for you know, some of the pretty standard terminology that we have in Judaism um, that seems not to go with the notion that we are the father, uh, but seems to think about us as being the child or the spouse or the wife in the relationship? So for example, what does it mean to talk about a covenant? What does it mean to talk about a breed given this? Well, I think breed actually works out pretty nicely because, breed, because the notion of breed says, where does the Jewish obligation come from? It comes from a relationship. And this also is saying there is a relationship. It's a relationship with God. Um, 
who is represented as what in the relationship might vary. It might be that um, the father-son dynamic does not work, but it is still a relationship, and it still suggests even a filial relationship. Um, how do you think about tefillah? Right? There's so much of tefillah that says, like, Avinu Malkeinu, Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king. Um, there I would say, actually, this is a place in Judaism where the model of suggestion doesn't really work. Um, tefillah is a place where I think the point actually is to see God as powerful. Um, I think one of the purposes of tefillah is to kind of bring about a level of humility. And that's difficult to see because so much of, like, the, of the egalitarian movement has focused on shul dynamics. Um, like the one place in the Jewish tradition, which is really about like you know feeling yirat shemayim, feeling like this this awe of God, is a place that's become much very political. Um, so I'm saying that to say that I think it's important actually to kind of um, recognize after we've made all these changes um, that the point of prayer is still to have that relationship with God, and also that the relationship with God, as I've said before, is a vulnerable one. It's fragile. Um, it's a relationship that is dependent on what we do and what we don't do. Um, and that we can break it by acting the wrong way or being callous about our prayer or about um, not giving it enough uh, attention or seriousness. That is also a kind of power, the power to break off a relationship with God. And that's also part of what it means for God to be vulnerable. I think that's something which a lot of us, it's certainly something that I certainly feel, that God is vulnerable and that like you can lose a relationship with God. What does it mean for, about Yerat Shemayim? This notion of fear of heaven, which we talked about at the beginning of the class. Yerat Shemayim can be, I think, this is one possibility, about knowing about God's fragility, about wanting to preserve a relationship as well. And that um, one is, has awe or one has fear, um, but that's a fear of, of recognizing that something is very valuable. I mean, this is something which, um, I don't remember where, where exactly I heard this first, but that, um, you know, it's, very, it's often the things which are the most fragile, the things that you take care of best, like your glasses, for example. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually because of their fragility that you uh, spend enormous care in making sure that they do not break. Um, and lastly, what does it mean about changing halachic practice? Can we think about that in terms of this halachic system? I think this is actually close to being a fatherly responsibility. Uh, what it means to change halacha is to care about the world deeply. Um, and to care about Jews deeply, and to be interested in um, preserving what can be a fragile relationship with God, um, and to improve the quality of life that people have um, through halacha. And that is on another kind of obligation. And think you can even think about that as a kind of divine obligation that also exists as a result of the breed, as a result of covenant. Um, there is a responsibility to be good to people. Um, Maybe one more point, which is like, maybe a silly point, but like, some of this is new. Like, some of this is just me inventing stuff. How would you do this? One thing I, was, I would say is all of the sources we've looked at so far are Jews inventing ways of thinking about God. When the Talmud says something like, God only has the four of halacha, that's an invention. When Yosla Rakover says that he loves God despite himself, that's a kind of invention. When the Midrash says that you know, we do what God does, or that God weeps, or that God travels around with us, these are all inventions. And there is nothing new or spectacular about saying that we can think about God or that we can invent languages to think about God. I think it's actually very important to, tr to try to find language that works for us. And, and I think it's language, it's not just arguments, but like it's imagery um, that works for us. So maybe the last thing we'll do is look at Heschel and then we'll end. Um, have to look at Heschel at the end because he's so wonderful. And now that you've gone through Levinas, you deserve a break. Um,
Heschel says, The sense for the realness of God will not be found in insipid concepts, in opinions that are astute, arid, timid, in love that is scant, erratic. Sensitivity for God is given to a broken heart, to a mind that rises above its own wisdom. It is a sensitivity that bursts all abstractions. It is not a mere playing with the notion. There is no conviction without contrition, no affirmation without self-engagement. Consciousness of God is a response, and God is a challenge rather than a notion. We do not think of him. We are stirred by him. We can never describe him. We cannot comprehend him. We can sense his presence. We cannot grasp his essence. God is unknowable. And here's the, the, the key part. His is the call. Ours is the paraphrase. His is the creation. Ours is a reflection. He is not an object to be comprehended, a thesis to be endorsed, neither the sum of all that is facts, nor a digest of all that ought to be ideals. He is the ultimate subject. The trembling sense for the hereness of God is the assumption of our being accountable to him. God awareness is not an act of God being known to man. It is the awareness of man's being known by God. In thinking about him, we are thought by him. Now, I think this is powerful that, that we should think about ourselves from God's perspective. And I think uh, there's one way of reading Heschel here as, as going along with the notion we've talked about before of like the, the second grader's notion of um, God as being like as God as being the, the center of focus and us being on the periphery, and we should recognize that God's in the center and that we're on the periphery. Um, I think there's another way of reading this, which is also powerful, um, and that suggests that halakha and Judaism militates against um, religion as being self-interested, that we are never supposed to be the center of attention. The center of attention is always supposed to be elsewhere, um, and that elsewhere is God. But if we understand God as being um, as, as generating ethical responsibility and as also as expressing the kind of weakness and the needs of the world, um, then when we remove the locus of interest from ourselves, when we say religion is not about me anymore, it's about somebody else or about something else, then what it means for religion to be about God, for God to be the focus, is it means the focus is on, um, is actually in the Jewish people or is in the world as a whole. The obligation is to um, provide, to be ethical and to provide goodness to uh, the world as a whole, um, and for the sake of others. Next time is going to be a kind of concluding session, and if you have ideas for what you want to do with it, then let me know. But any questions? I have a question or a thought. Um, so, the 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 concept of God that like we might um, have as an individual is not going to might be shaped by. By these ideas, but I was wondering how how the response as how the response should as a community. I mean, I feel like the the concept as a community. I don't know if that necessarily has to be uniform or not in order like for it to be sort of to like, to like our obligations. Like a lot of yes. Does it need to be uniform? Right. Um, I don't think it does. Um, I think the sense of obligation has to be uniform, but there's a lot of ways that you can get to that sense of obligation there's, because there's a lot of ways that, there's a lot of ways of imagining the relationship with God that generate obligations. Um, and there's certainly people for whom, like, 
this does not work. And they will think about God in, uh, in terms of like parents or in terms of rulership, um, and that works for them. Um, there's a Maharal, the Maharal of Prague, um, who is a um, really modern um, um, Jewish thinker philosopher, um, suggests that human beings can never align their thoughts. Um, you can align your actions and you can align your feelings, but your thoughts are entirely your own, and there's not even a point of, of aligning them. So, in a way, this can remain personal. Um, yeah. So, so in in that way, like the community is saved from having to agree on one model of God. And I don't think that like we should be setting out a kind of credo of of this is what Judaism right. thinks about about God's existence. We're just looking to create um, images that are powerful and that are meaningful. Um, and and if those images work then good. If they don't, then we have to look for other images. So really the focus is on halacha and how to sort of accommodate your vision of God. So you can follow halacha. Right, and halacha. But um, especially given last week's class, halacha in the expanded sense of not just kind of doing all the rules, but also of um, caring for the world as a, as a whole. That's also part of the, the sense of community. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a reason that, like, many of, like, the deepest, most personal moments in, in, in Jewish tefillah are, are silent moments. Like, they're not, you kind of break away from the sense of community for those moments uh, to talk to God.